sign in like 45 seconds, so give people a chance to sit down real quick, and then we're going to get started right on time. We have a decent amount to cover, as usual. All right, um, let me pray for us here, and then we will, uh, we will get started. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to come here and uh, worship you. Lord, I pray that our worship and praise would be glorifying to you, that it would be acceptable in your sight. I pray that our hearts would be settled on you, uh, your redemptive work, Lord, um, that you purchased on our behalf, God, that we would, uh, we would come before you right now knowing that we are accepted based on what you've done. I pray for our time in the Word today, that it would be uh, a means of grace to us, Lord, that we would uh, sit under it and accept it. I pray that my words would be clear, uh, Lord, that they would be understandable. Uh, God, that you would help me to articulate uh, this lesson well. Um, Lord, I pray that any questions that we might have, Lord, that they would be answered. And uh, God, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. All right. So we are uh, continuing to go through. Uh, we are in week two of the actual book itself, uh, a book by Thaddeus J. Williams called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, 12 Questions Christians Should Ask About Social Justice. So this week we're going to cover chapter two, my plan, tentatively, is to go one chapter at a time for right now. Um, I do want to get through the appendices in the back of the book because they have some valuable things in them. Some of them, one of them I disagree with, but the other ones I, th I find very helpful. Um, and we will, um, we will uh, probably speed up at some point, but I haven't figured out where I'm going to put that in yet, okay? Where we'll maybe go two chapters for a couple weeks in a row. Um, and I'll, I'll be sure to let you guys know well in advance whenever we decide to do that. But today we're going to be covering chapter 2. Um, first, let me ask, any, any questions from last week? Before we get started with this week. Any questions from last week? No? Okay. Well, this week we're going to start on page 21, which is the first page of chapter 2. The chapter 2 is titled, let me get a drink real quick. Chapter 2 is titled, The Imago Question. Does our vision of social justice acknowledge the image of God in everyone, regardless of size, shade, sex, or status? So we're asking the question, what does it mean to bear the image of God? He starts out with this first, this first sentence there. It says, celebrated philosopher Charles Taylor pulls another puzzle piece from the carpet to help us fill in a bigger picture of justice. A defining mark of our secular age is what Taylor calls the imminent frame. The imminent frame is Taylor's 50-cent philosophy term to describe that we, Christians included, tend to operate in the universe as if it is a closed box. We assume that the best way to make sense of the universe What's inside the box is by other stuff inside the box. Charles Darwin and Richard Dawkins would have us make sense of all life in terms of biology. Stephen Hawking and Neil deGrasse Tyson would reduce reality to physics. Sigmund Freud and Steven Pinker would point to psychology. Karl Marx and Friedrich Hayek 
to economics, Herbert Marcuse and Hugh Hefner to sex, Steve Jobs and Elon Musk to technology, Disney and TMZ to entertainment. Invoke God as an explanation of reality, someone good who is unconfined by the box because he made the box, and to most people, you might as well play in the fiery apocalypse on a handcrafted Swanson flute yelling, Hail Zorp, as strangers in the park. It's a little bit of... I don't really get the joke, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, if, what if the joke is on us? What if many of today's attempts at justice have become so laughable precisely because we have laughed out of the room the being who is most serious about true justice? Nothing inside the box grounds, and this is the key sentence on the whole page, nothing inside the box grounds equality or dignity or value. Okay, this is what we've been hitting on. Remember how I keep saying he kind of assumes some of these things, and he's stating a first principle here. He states that God defines the box. Why does God define the box? Because God created the box. And therefore, we cannot in any way compare or define ourselves by other things that are in the box. We must define ourselves by the definitions that God gives us, right? That's what he's pointing to this whole time uh, in this chapter. Some of the imminent frame... That those are different marks of philosophical thought. One might be rationalism. Rationalism comes from is the belief that human reason stands above all else. Human reason is the interpreter, okay, of all reality. Or empiricism. Empiricism would be more or less like Richard Dawkins and other physicists, biologists, and those sorts who say that we can only understand the world by what our eyes actually see. Okay, so. Remember, whenever we talk about this, it doesn't mean that God does not use science. It does not mean that God does not use biology and physics. It doesn't mean that he doesn't use reason, but he created those things for his glory. Therefore, we cannot take them and abuse them to degrade who he is. So that's the point that we're starting out in this, pa- uh, this passage. If we do that thing, we deny the image of God. We deny the God who created us. What is the chief end of man? Anybody know? According to the uh, f- uh, first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So that when we take those things that are good gifts from God, such as science, whether it be biology or physics or medical profession or whatever it might be, and we use them in service to the creature in order to build up ourselves as opposed to being in service to God, then we fail. Then we end up with... Social justice B, as he would call it, or what I would call unbiblical justice, or just no justice, okay? Any questions about that? Flip with me to uh, Genesis chapter 1. We're going we're gonna, to, because he doesn't do this, we're going to define, try to get our, uh, uh, some definitional concepts down. That, that first page there is really kind of a, uh, a spring forward just from what we talked about last week. It's essentially the same thing, but... We don't spend any time in this chapter really defining what it means to be in the image of God. And we need to do that first. So let's go to the scripture. We're going to turn to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. And I'm reading out of the New King James here. So if my version uh, is different than yours, that is why. New King James says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion 
over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Notice how many times we've repeated that. Four times in those first couple of verses right there, right? Male and female, he created them. There's a fifth. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, I'm going to ask you guys a question. I want your help in this. What does it mean to be created in the image and or likeness of God? What does that mean? Okay, we bear his attributes. Okay. What are some of the attributes that we might bear that show that we are created in the image of God? Thought. Okay. Creating. What else? That's right. None of those are wrong. <laughs> what? Say it again. Emotions. Well, can... Can animals have emotions? Maybe. Fear, those sorts of things. They can. What differentiates us from animals? Yeah, consciousness and reason. Yeah. Those are the things that the, the animals can't. Animals can solve problems, but they cannot create. They cannot reason, right, in the same way that human beings can. Okay? So when we're made in the image of the likeness of God, this is, what, uh, John, this is how John MacArthur would define it in his, uh, his study Bible. It says, This is the first clear indication of the triunity of God. The very name of God, Elohim. So we're talking about where it says, Let us, let us create man in our image. This is the plurality of, the, of our God. The plural pronouns introduce the plurality of relationships in the Godhead. They suggest both communion and consultation among the members of the Trinity. They also signify perfect agreement and clear purpose. Man, and this is what he says about man. This is, this is pertinent to us right now. The crowning point of creation, a living human, was made in God's image to rule creation. So we have our intrinsic value and, our de- and the definition of what we are, which is we are made in the image of God, and then we get, are given a purpose, okay, to rule creation, to be fruitful and multiply, and to be the crown of all creatures, okay? It says, <clears throat> goes on to say, our image likeness. This speaks of the creation of Adam in terms that are uniquely personal, It establishes a personal relationship between God and man that does not exist with any other aspect of creation. We would call that covenant. It is the very thing that makes humanity different from every other created animal. It explains why the Bible places so much stress on God's hands-on creation of Adam. He fashioned this creature in a special way to bear the stamp of his own likeness. It suggests that God was, in essence, the pattern for the personhood of man. The image of God is personhood. And personhood can function only in the context of relationships or covenant. Man's capacity for intimate personal relationships needed fulfillment. Most important, man was designed to have a personal relationship with God. 
It is impossible to divorce this truth from the fact that man is an ethical creature. All true relationships have ethical ramifications. This is pertinent to what we're talking about, right? It is at this point that God's communicable attributes come into play. Man is a living being capable of embodying God's communicable attributes, which are ethical. That is, they are moral. That is, they have to do with justice. Okay? This is what it means to be created in the image of God. In his rational life, he was like God in that he could reason and had intellect, will, and emotion. In the moral sense, he was like God because he was good and sinless. However, it did not bestow deity upon man. And of course, we know that Adam gave away that goodness and sinlessness by his uh, refusal to obey God, right? Okay, so any questions about that? Does that make sense? Does anybody, who can define for me what a communicable attribute is? Quickly before we go on. Okay, so it's an attribute of God. We might say uh, something that is true about who he is, maybe that he is just or righteous, that he, uh, uh, can, that he is holy, that he can communicate those things to us so that we can act in a just way, we can act in a righteous way, we can act in a holy way. Does that make sense? You can think of it like a communicable disease. That means it's a disease that can be passed from one person to another. There are certain attributes of God that are incommunicable, therefore they cannot be given to us. His omnipotence, his omniscience, uh, his omnipresence. We can't be everywhere at once. We don't have all knowledge, and we don't have the power that God has, right? Those are just the best example or quick examples that we could give without making this a lesson about the communicable and incommunicable attributes of God. Does that make sense? So that's what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. Remember, there's a moral, ethical component to that, that God did not create us neutral. Okay? It's a myth. Men are not created neutral, nor can they be neutral, because we are made in the image of God. Now, we can destroy that image. We can mar that image. We can confuse it. We can... can, um, muddy it, we can make it undiscernible by our depravity, but we cannot undo the fact that God made us in his image and that he stamped that law on every human heart. Westminster Larger Larger Catechism question 17 says it this way. It says, after God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, formed the body of man of the dust of the ground and the woman of the rib of man, endued them with living reasonable and immortal souls made them after his own image in knowledge righteousness and holiness having the law of god written in their hearts and the power to fulfill it and dominion over the creatures yet subject to the fall you hear that he created us in his image and in what way in knowledge righteousness and holiness having the law of God written on their hearts. Okay? God has instilled in every man a conscience that reflects the law, his law, his nature. No matter how much we push it down and destroy it, it's there. Okay? Therefore, there is no neutrality when it comes to moral judgments. We are all created with that conscience. 
Even the person who lives the most depraved life cannot stand injustice against them. Even the atheist, would they be okay with someone stealing their property? Would they be okay with someone hurting their loved one? The answer to that's no. And why? It's because of that conscience, which they've suppressed for their own benefit in their sinful life, but refuse to acknowledge God as creator, right? That's Romans 1. Any questions so far? So that's what it means to be created in the image of God. We've got to grasp that before we can get to the rest of the chapter, because the rest of the chapter kind of has to do with this, okay? So flip over to page 22. This is something I mentioned last week, so I'm going to acknowledge that he says this. Remember how I framed it last week. He says, by starting our exploration of justice with the question, what is due to God, let me be clear, we are committing 21st century heresy. He's absolutely correct in this. If your fundamental question, if your first principle is what does man owe to God, then you are in opposition automatically to Western culture right now. Okay? Fundamentally, if that's your question. He says you are committing 21st century heresy. We are starting from beyond the imminent frame, that is what we can see or what we can think only inside of creation. But any truly Christian approach to justice must be an outside-of-the-box perspective. We must be heretics in the culture's eyes, willing to risk all kinds of unsavory labels if we are truly to execute justice as the Scripture commands. And remember, one of those ways that I expressed that last week, that I'm not saying he disagrees with, but that he just didn't mention, we'll have one of those again this week, okay, was the fact that the Bible allows us to make accurate truthful generalizations of people groups. It does. It's explicit in the text when Paul says that Cretans are lazy and gluttonous. And he says this testimony is true. When Jesus calls the Canaanite woman part of the community of dogs. Okay? So that's there in Scripture. Remember I I expressed that tension that we want to be accurate in our portrayals of those things. We're going to kind of see that again this week, okay? Okay? Um, you can go back and listen to that lesson if you want to see exactly how I, I, I framed that. I'm not going to go through all that again today. But we have this tension, right, that we have opposition to the Christian faith that is going to continue to be there. So the question then is, and that's what he's going to spend the rest of the chapter trying to define, is what do we do with that tension? What do we do with that tension? How do we handle it? So the imminent frame is meant to, in this chapter, give us a basis for reality. But can it? Can rationalism, can empiricism, can uh, science alone, can reason alone, give us a rational basis for morality? It can't. It fails. We must look to God to do that. So on page 23, the first and third paragraph. Remember, I said I'm not going to read the whole book because it would be... You would just be standing up here listening to me the whole time. I'm going to get to the application principles of this here in just a few minutes. I want to, this is essentially rehashing some of the stuff we've already covered, but it's very important. It says, in a tightly reasoned article, this is at the top of page 23, in a tightly reasoned article, quote, does naturalism warrant a moral belief in the universal benevolence, in universal benevolence in human rights? Notre Dame sociologist Christian Smith helps us deepen Augustine's insight. Smith argues that naturalism, 
the belief that there are no supernatural realities, only nature and its processes, this is what rationalism and empiricism assume, okay, is often espoused by those who are zealously committed to universal human rights. But, Smith argues, we can't have it both ways. Take, for example, the rally cry of equality. If naturalism is true, then human beings are their bodies. Are their bodies. If naturalism is true, then we have nothing else. Okay? We have nothing else. There is nothing more to us. Atheists like John Paul Sartre, author Arthur Leff, and Alex Rosenberg have bolstered Smith's point. If we're nothing more than matter, then there seems to be no meaningful way to talk about justice. I would say it doesn't seem that way. It is that way. If we are nothing but random, physical, um, chemical reactions that have developed from a puddle four billion years ago, your feelings mean nothing. Your desire for food and my, my obligation to give you that food if you're in need is meaningless. Okay? It is meaningless. If we assume that naturalism is foundational to being a human, then we are nothing more than animals, and we should do nothing less than seek our benefit at the cost of everyone else, which is exactly what animals do. Okay? It says, there is a tendency today, he goes on. You can read that second paragraph. It kind of goes on to say a little bit more about that. It talks about how there is, there is natural inequality in the world if we assume that all of our bodies are just um, there, you know, have developed out of nothing. Uh, for instance, I couldn't go and compete in the NBA. LeBron James's body is more valuable than mine. That's why he makes so much more money. But does that, does that actually have to do with equality, though? Well, if we follow a Darwinistic, naturalistic approach, then he's a more valuable human than I am. And he's a more valuable human than any of you sitting in this room. How do we see that? Because we see the natural uh, development of that. We see the natural uh, riches that he has reaped from his body, right? But does that what God says? No, absolutely not. That is not what God says, okay? So let's get that down. But here we start to make a distinction. He says, there is a tendency today, this is the third paragraph on page 23, there is a tendency today to reduce people not to bodies, but to ideologies. We don't see a human being so much as we see social justice snowflakes to our left and neo-Nazi fascists to our right. Or we see and treat people on the basis of their skin color or gender or, hu- or whom they want to sleep with. That is why giving God his due is so important to real justice. We were born into the box. We spend every day bumping around inside the box. If we imagine that the box is closed, then bumping around in the dark, we hear what people say, feel, feel them bump into us, and assess how much inconvenience or pain they cause us, grope around and feel the size of their wallets, and categorize everyone and hypothesize how to make life inside the box happier. That's exactly what I just said. Okay? If there is no God in heaven then there is no point to life except to pursue your own pleasure. That's what Paul says. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. 
okay? This is what you are facing in our Western culture. We have wholesale bought into this, rejecting completely an accountability to God that we owe him, okay, as his creation. So, but we cannot be reduced to physical beings only, neither can we be reduced to spiritual beings only. Okay, I want you to see that. We both have to live in this world, but we, and we also have to have our spirits reformed by God, right? We owe both. You don't, your existence does not happen in a vacuum. We cannot say that we are now in this world just living for heaven. Neither can we say, along with the social justice B proponents, that all we have to do is perform justice and equity according to their standards. Do you see the distinction there? We can't over-spiritualize our lives so that we forget to live in the world that God has called us to live in. That is disobedience. And we cannot at the same time take the view of the early 20th century, late 19th century political proponents of creating a world without God in it that is a positive world. Secularism will always fail. Without the acknowledgement of the Creator, then you performing alms to the poor, you providing housing will always be founded on the wrong foot. Always. There is no way to perform those acts which God desires without first giving thanks to Him. All of our works, all of our works have to be sanctified by the blood of Christ in order to be a fragrant offering to God, and there is nothing that we can do to please Him outside of that. Now, that it does not mean that it is not good for non Christians to help the poor. It is. So don't hear me saying that. But what I mean is the ultimate thing, the first principle thing, is what we owe to God because he created us. Okay? And if you don't start there, you don't have an answer for our culture. You don't have an answer for our culture. Any questions so far? I'm trying not to repeat myself again and again and again here. But. Okay, so he gives us some application here. Flip over to page 24 and 25 if you have your book. <clears throat> this is going to be where we start to think about things. He's going to offer one perspective, which is biblical, but I, I want to offer a follow-up to that that I think helps it, that he kind of leaves out. I'm not saying intentionally, but, he, but it's left out of there. But I want us to, I want us to see these things. So how do we interact then with this culture? We've talked a lot about first principles, which are spiritual in nature, but what do we do when we put, start to put feet to this? Uh, I think that's kind of where we're headed as we move out of chapter 3, which is part, part, the last part of part 1 of the book, into part 2. Okay, So as we do that, we need to be mindful and set some, uh, some, some groundwork for what we do in this way. So page 24, the last paragraph, and then the first paragraph on page 25. It says, as we seek a more just world, right? That's what we should be doing as Christians in a way. We seek first the righteousness of Christ. We seek first his kingdom. And one of the implications of that kingdom is a worked out righteousness in the world. That's what it means to be salt and light in the world. It says, as we seek a more just world, if we see those who disagree with us as Republicans or Democrats, progressives or conservatives, radical leftists, 
or right-wing fundamentalists first, and as image bearers second, or not at all, then we are not on the road to justice. We're on history's wide and bloody road to to dehumanization. Take a moment to think of specific people whose ideology you disagree with most. Pick your top three. It might be a public figure, a politician, a family member, a co-worker, or a neighbor. Picture someone specific who you see as the living, breathing antithesis of everything you believe to be true and just. Antithesis means opposite. Picture that person with all his or her smugness, which is arrogance, in your mind's eye. Now think this true thought toward that person. Image bearer. Say it again, image bearer. Once more for good measure, image bearer. Next time you see that person, before your blood pressure starts to rise, repeat, image bearer, image bearer, image bearer. Then treat that person as an image bearer because that is who they were long before you found yourselves on the opposite side of the culture war. Then, when it starts to set in how incredibly difficult it is to treat people as image bearers, for more than five minutes, pray for yourself what Paul once prayed for the Thessalonians. May the Lord make me increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Now that's good and biblical, okay? I don't, I don't want us to miss that. Um, all you need to do is just open your scriptures. And I actually think this is one of the ways in which we would be familiar with what God calls us to do in terms of treating people who oppose us. What's a term that God uh, uses in his word to talk about or define uh, in a general way, it's one word, that uh, those who oppose his people, they are Enemies, absolutely. Enemies of God. So the real question that we're dealing with here, what do we do with enemies of God? Okay? What do we do with enemies of us and of God? Of God and his people? Okay? What do we do? One of those things is we treat them with respect and dignity as people. Okay? That's one of those things. Where is that illustrated? Matthew chapter 4, or chapter 5, verses 43. I'll tap there myself. If you want to follow along with me, you can. If you just want to write these references down and listen to me read them, you can. Okay? Either way. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is not what the law said, by the way. They were twisting it. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Why? Do we do that? That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Okay? So, what type of love? That is God's general love toward sinful people. That is not his salvific love toward sinful people. So we need to keep that in mind. That he treats people and gives them an opportunity within his world insofar as his sovereign will decrees, okay, to live a life where they can expect to be fed and where they can expect to have clothing and those sorts of things. Now, obviously, that depends on their decisions, but we are supposed to treat them with respect and dignity as image bearers of God. This is repeated in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. 
Sometimes I think it would be faster for me to turn there than it is for me to tap there. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Okay, Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, verses 18 through 20. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, that's the key, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So that we do not, and here's where we're going to lead into the second point, which I think sometimes gets missed in this discussion, okay? So we do not practice revenge as Christians. We do not practice retaliation. That is different from self-defense. That's another discussion. But we do not practice revenge as Christians. We do not retaliate. We leave that to the magistrate. How does God repay through, by his vengeance for evil? Romans 13 tells us. He, Paul actually goes on right after this to tell us that the government is given as a deacon or a minister to administer the sword based on good and evil. He literally follows this very passage with that. So we leave that to the magistrate. Retaliation is not in the hands of Christians. That is in the hands of God. And his minister, Lord willing that it performs it justly, the government. Okay? Now, what do we do with other passages of Scripture, though? So we're to pray for them, right? We're to be courteous. We don't revile, so we don't, we don't name call for no reason uh, in terms of uh, just trying to be derogatory in our own pride. That's not something that God calls us to. But what about other th- places in Scripture? Let's turn to, and I want you to actually turn here in your Bibles, Psalm 109. Psalm 109. What are other ways that God calls us that have to do with allowing him, have to do with allowing him to take care of us and these things? What are these, what are these ways? Psalm 109. Verses 1 through 15. It says this, Do not keep silent, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked... And the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. So there's enemy, enemy of, a per, of people of God. Okay, keep that in your mind. How does he deal with it? He says, have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought, with me, uh, fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are accusers. You notice how David says that he is just in how he's treated them, which is exactly what Romans and Matthew and first Peter have called us to, okay? But notice how, he, how, how this continues. Thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Set a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty. So now what's he doing? And let, this prayer, let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let them seek 
their bread also from their desolate places. Let the creditor seize all that he has and let strangers plunder his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy to him, nor let there be any favor to his fatherless children. How does God encourage us? Now, let's not get trapped in this saying, we can't pray these things. David was a man just like us. These are referred to as imprecatory psalms. This is how God exacts his vengeance, and we are to partake in it as a means of prayer and song back to God. We don't exact vengeance. Who's, God, who's David going to in here? God. What's he praying? So we pray for their repentance, absolutely. But we also pray for God's judgment on the unrepentant. So this is physical circumstances, right? Let's flip to Psalm 69, verses 19 through 20. Lest we think that David is praying just for physical ruin on these people who oppose God. Because remember, we can't fail to acknowledge and believe as Christians that every person owes God his due or the world will fail to do that. Okay? We can't fail to realize and remember that Christ died for us because God is just and he does not forgive the penalty of sin without a sacrifice. Every person in this world is required to give what is due to God. Okay? If we don't believe that, then we miss passages like this. Psalm 69, verses 19 through 28. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before me. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar. Now here's where we enter into another praying of judgment on these people. Let their table become a snare before them, and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, and make their lions shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents, for they persecute the ones you have struck and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Add inequity to their inequity, and let them not come into your righteousness. Listen, and let them not come into your righteousness. And then what does he say? Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. That is anathema. God, curse these people. Send them to hell. That's what he's praying. And if we believe what Paul wrote to Timothy, that all Scripture is breathed out by God, if we believe what David writes in Psalm 119, that the word of the Lord is perfect and keeps our way pure, then this is for the Christian too. We cannot just push this onto Jesus as though he didn't. Per- he did absolutely 100%. He is the one who sits over in judgment like this. But this is a promise to Christians to pray as well. This cannot be left behind by the church. And why has it be le- been left behind by the church? It has been left behind by the church because we have abandoned our heritage in the re- since the Reformation. And we have left the singing of psalms and the praise and worship of the church behind. Okay? 
We don't sing about these things. We're uncomfortable with these things because we have not been taught them. We have not been taught them. This is all over the Psalms. This is just two instances. What about the the saying that God loves the sinner but hates the sin? That's false. That's biblically wrong. It's untruthful. It's a lie. Read Psalm chapter 11, verse 5. God hates sinners and their sin. That doesn't mean that there's not hope for them. That's what I'm trying to drive you toward. Christ is their hope. Christ is the only hope of the world. Christ is the only hope of our culture. Okay? But we can't fail as we treat them with respect, as we treat them, right, as we treat them with dignity as image bearers of God, to at the same time pray for the absolute destruction from on high of everything that they stand for that stands in opposition to the creator of the world. We have to do both, and we let God be the instrument of that. We are not the instruments of retaliation, okay? God is the avenger, and he will be the avenger, okay? He will be the avenger. Let me read an article quickly from Table Talk magazine. Well, first, lest you think this is just in the Old Testament, what does Paul say to the, to the, about false teachers in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9? Anybody who presents to you a false gospel, another gospel, let him be accursed. What do you think he's referring to? Okay, he's, he's praying exactly the same prayer okay, to false teachers. Well, what about people in general? 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. This only applies to the Old Testament, right? Absolutely not. This principle is carried forth into the New Testament because it is a just principle. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. We hold both of those things in tension. How do we hold them in tension? We know that God is the one who is the just. We know that God is the one who saves We know that God is the one who is holy, and we pray for the repentance of those people, but we pray for the destruction of everything that stands up against his king, Christ. All right. This is what, uh, this is an article from Table Talk Magazine, which is a uh, production of Ligonier Ministries, R.C. Sproul's ministry before he passed away. He's the one who started it. He says, yeah, can I pray imprecatory prayers? Yes, and you should. As difficult as that answer might be to swallow, it best accounts for the biblical record. Let me explain. He goes on to say, At root, an imprecatory psalm is an invocation of divine cursing. Examples of these imprecations include Psalm 5, Psalm 6, Psalm 35, Psalm 69, Psalm 109, all of which are cited in the New Testament. So remember, when you see a passage cited in the New Testament, it's not as though they're leaving out part of the psalm that was cited. They know what the whole thing says. Okay, we can't leave that stuff behind. 
says the consistent wish, witness of Scripture affirms the legitimacy of God's people making use of imprecatory prayers in their individual, family, and corporate par- prayers. Underlying this assertion is a basic assumption that the prayers of God's people should be rooted in all of Scripture. The Psalter is God's divinely inspired prayer book and hymnal. It gives us the language of petition and praise. The imprecatory psalms help give shape to the hurt and outrage that the people of God at times experience in a world desecrated by sin. When you are down, when you are discouraged, go here. Know that there is a God in heaven who listens to you, who acts on the behalf of his people, who vindicates his justice through his people. Okay? We have a God in heaven who judges rightly who judges rightly. To pray the imprecatory psalms, he goes on to say, is ultimately to pray as Jesus taught us to pray. As Christians, we long for God's kingdom to come. We yearn for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Praying imprecatory psalms is not a call to arms, physical arms, but a call to faith. We lift our voices, not our swords. We pray for God either to convert or curse the enemies of Christ and his kingdom. As I mentioned to you, why? Why, why is this a deficiency in the church? It's a deficiency because the church has failed to keep its heritages and to obey the word of God in singing psalms during worship services. We've forgotten our heritage. We've forgotten their prayers. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Ephesians 5, verse 19 commands the church of God to sing psalms, and we forgot to do that. So as a practical help to you before I close... Um, this is a book that has benefited our family greatly. You can find it on ReformationHeritageBooks.com, ReformationHeritageBooks.com, The Psalms of David in Meter. It's common meter. It's a way for you and your family to start to incorporate the songs in your times of devotion. By common meter, we, we talk about songs like um, Amazing Grace, Old Lang Syne, uh, Old Four Thousand Tongues to Sing. And they're very easy to learn. I am not musical very much at all, but I am able to lead our family in this, time, in this each night that I'm home when we do family worship. Okay? So, how do we handle this? What do we do? And this is the last little bit here. We must be willing to trust the Lord in every way, believing Him when we are broken over the sin in the world. We must treat enemies of, of God, our enemies, with love, we must never deny them things that are tr- they are truly in need of. Simultaneous, simultaneously, while we pray for their conversion, we must pray for the destruction of all things, including people, down to their being accursed eternally, which set themselves up against the knowledge of our Creator. Remember, our Lord is concerned first with His glory Okay, and secondarily, through that, he loves his creatures. Okay? All right, let's pray. In Jesus' name, in Jesus, we just come before you, Lord, and we thank you for everything that you've done for us. God, I pray that you would help us to use all of Scripture in the way that you have called us to. God, help us to uh, conform to your word. Lord, help us to uh, be a blessing to others in every way that we possibly can so far as it depends on us. God, give us uh, that ability to be patient with those who mock us. Give us that ability to be uh, 
uh, undaunted by the things of the world which stand in opposition to us as we take your word. Allow us to have a true and compassionate heart for those who don't know you, while at the same time believing your judgment should come upon those who refuse to 